Well, we're going to continue our tour of some of my favorite things with a doctrine of Scripture that I used to deny, but now embrace as foundational for our entire understanding of the gospel. How's that for a teaser? All right, but before we get there, before we, before we dive into that, let me briefly tell you about two of my other favorite things. Uh, these are not very important things I'm about to tell you about, but they are very important for you to understand so that you do not waste your time trying to convince me otherwise. Okay? The first is my loyalty and dedication to the Detroit Tigers. This is my favorite, this is, hey, this is my family's baseball team, okay? I've I been watching them my entire life. My mom still watches them every time they're on TV. I vaguely remember them winning the World Series in 1984 when I was six years old. Uh, on most Sundays in the summer, you will be able to find me after these services on my couch uh, watching the Tiger game napping between the third and the seventh inning, waking up, and then having my son recap for me what it is that I missed. My other favorite thing, and you probably saw this coming, is that I am a diehard Detroit Lions fan. You know I am secure in my identity in Christ (laughs) to admit this before you. Every year, my team reminds me my hope is not in this world. It's been a hard football life. But I am telling you, like Linus in the pumpkin patch, someday my Lions are going to win it all, and I'm going to be the one in that pumpkin patch shivering with the most sincerity. Now look, I get, I get it, right? I've been here long enough now. I've had a number of you come to me. I get that you are going to try to convince me otherwise. I understand this, okay? And I will, I will extend this olive branch to you. On years when it appears that my football team has forgotten how to play football, like this year, for instance, I will casually hope that the Vikings do well. Okay? All right? Okay, that's fair, right? You got Kirk Cousins, he's a fellow Spartan. That's wonderful, that's fine. But listen to me, listen to me. Make eye contact with me right now. Listen to me. I could plant a church at Lambeau Field. I will still not root for the Green Bay Packers. So you can take your cheese hats and your unflattering color scheme and your multiple championships and you can keep it to yourself. I also don't care for the Bears, but I don't feel as passionately about that one. I decided to share these two with you this morning as I was thinking about what to share uh, because uh, both of my teams consistently remind me to trust in the doctrine of Scripture that we're going to look at uh, this morning. We're going to look at the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that everything that has happened, everything that will happen is part of God's plan, and nothing comes to pass unless he actively does it or allows it to happen. And with this, he sustains everything in the created order with his power. And it is all for the glory of God, as it points to our sovereign king, Jesus Christ. 
As Colossians states, all things were made through him and for him, and by him all things hold together. When I first became a follower of Jesus, I was under the impression that while God is powerful, he is not sovereign. That was my, that was my feeling. And that's actually, that's actually a, a pretty, pretty common starting place for most Christians, that he's, that he's powerful but not sovereign. We don't usually come into God's kingdom with a big view of his sovereign will. We usually start with a view of God who is much smaller and much weaker than that. For example, when I put my faith in Jesus, I thought that I was choosing him. I thought that I used my own wisdom and my own knowledge to allow Jesus to become my Savior. And in a sense, I did choose Jesus, though as I read the Bible subsequently, God's word clarifies for me that while I love him, it's because he first loved me. While I do love him, while my love for him is true and real and is a decision from my perspective that my love is enabled by his love. My choice of him was enabled by his choice of me and his choice in me was before the foundations of the earth according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Now, I don't mind using the word choose there. I think we need to be calling to people to choose this day who you serve. But the Bible paints a bigger picture. It gives us a fuller story. And that story, the truth that God rules and reigns, that he's fully in control of everything that happens, that is not an easy doctrine for us to accept. Uh, first of all, it's hard for us to relate. We don't really have sovereign control. We don't know what that's like. We don't have sovereign control over anything, really. Even in my home, I don't have full control. Not everything going on in my house is according to my sovereign will. And if I put it like that, it'll go even less according to my sovereign will, right? It's hard, it's hard for us to, to wrap our brains around the idea that every single thing that happens, every single thing that takes place down to the minutia of life is part of God's plan and under his control. And secondly, we don't, we don't actually want that. It's hard for us to want. Generally, we are people who want power, right? We want authority. We want sovereignty. We want control for ourselves. This is part of the problem of sin. In a sense, you could define sin as the rejection of the rule of the Lord, a rejection of the sovereignty of the Lord, to declare not God's will be done, but that our will should be done. And ironically, even that rejection would fall under the sovereignty of God, which leads to the third problem that we have with this. It's hard for us to reconcile. It's hard for us to reconcile. God's sovereignty can sometimes be very difficult for us to understand. We ask, you know, why would God do it this way? Why does God allow sin and suffering? God's sovereignty creates a lot of mystery, and it requires a lot of trust on our part. And so because of those difficulties, a lot of folks reject the sovereignty of God. They assume that while God is powerful, he is not all-powerful. 
that while God knows things, he doesn't know everything. He's not all-knowing. Many begin to picture God as living in history along with us, discovering what's next just like we discover what's next, doing the best he can with what he has to work with, like you and me. But God and his word tells us that he is not like you and me. God's sovereign power stretches over all of time, over all of creation, and over every single situation that we encounter. And not only will this be of great comfort to you if you receive it, it is foundational for our confidence in the salvation in Christ. So go ahead, if you would, and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. If you have your phone, you can pull it up on your phone. Please try not to check Instagram while you're pulling it up on your phone. By the way, you'll find, uh, somebody asked me this this week, and, and you'll find that uh, I am always reading and preaching from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Somebody said, I couldn't find which version you were using. English Standard Version, ESV, is what I use. I think that it strikes the best balance between readability and accuracy. Uh, I'm not going to have Isaiah 46 up here on the screen today because it's long, so you're going to want to have that open in front of you. Isaiah 46 gives us four ways that God exercises his sovereignty. He carries the burden. He accomplishes his purpose. He uses both counsel and calamity, and he brings his salvation. And when we bring these, these different uh, exercises of God's sovereignty together, they, they construct a solid foundation for an all-knowing, all-powerful God that we can trust through anything. So first, let's look at God carrying the burden. The first seven verses of this chapter are a contrast between the kind of God that the Lord is and the kinds of gods, false gods, that humans make with their own hands and their hearts. If you read uh, Isaiah 40 to 45, those chapters leading up to this chapter, you'll see that the Lord consistently slams the idea of people making gods out of things like gold and wood. There's a, there's a whole section in chapter 44. It's one of my favorite sections of the Bible, uh, but uh, it's a section of chapter 44 where God makes fun of the fool who makes an idol out of one half of a log. Okay, so he cuts a, cuts a log in half, he makes an idol out of one half of the log, and then out of the other half, he, uh, he burns a fire so he can cook his food. So, so half, half the log is for dinner, and half the log is God. Does that sound very theologically, uh, theologically trustworthy? <laughs> no, of course not. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And, and that's what the Lord does. He ridicules this. But before you say to me, well, Kyle, I don't know anyone who would be so foolish today. I don't know anybody who would do something like that. Understand two things, okay? Two things. First of all, there are plenty of places in the world today where people are still constructing physical idols that are supposedly representative of some god, okay? That's all over our world, even if you don't see it all the time. But the second thing you've got to know is don't for a moment think that just because we don't see little statues all over the place that we don't have a problem with man-made gods. We have a huge problem with man-made gods. 
We have structures of pride and monuments to wealth and icons of lust and vanity all over our, all over our community, all over our society that represent false gods. When Jesus said that we can't serve both God and money, he showed us that money can become a false god. So you may not bow down to Lakshmi, the Hindu god of wealth, but you might uh, love your money and make it your savior, and that is the same thing. In Isaiah 46, the Lord continues to expose the foolishness of these false gods, so it's a continuation of that argument. And he does it here in this chapter in kind of a unique way. He talks about how these idols have to be carried on the backs of animals, and the animals get tired. So picture it, uh, someone constructs this this idol and then heaves it up and puts it on their cow uh, because the enemy's coming and they got to run away. So they put the, the idol on the cow and they, they start off and then the statues start to become a burden and they become such a burden for the animals that the animals start to stoop down. And then, of course, that makes the idols stoop down. And what happens is the, the enemy comes and takes everybody into captivity because they couldn't outrun uh, the, the enemy with these idols. Instead of saving you from the enemy, the Lord says, they get you caught by the enemy, which is actually very true of what false saviors do today. The drug you thought was a release from this world becomes a crippling addiction in this world, right? The relationship you thought was going to whisk you away and make your whole life right turns sour and becomes the problem. False gods always, always eventually become burdens, even if they're not at first. But then the Lord says, listen to me, listen to me. You don't carry me, I carry you. You don't carry me, I carry you. Verse three, born by me from before your birth, Carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. Try this today. Go find someone with gray hair who loves Jesus and ask them if the Lord has carried them through their lives. Go ahead. And you can identify them by that gray hair. They're proud of that, right? It's okay. Hey, you got gray hair, right? People with gray hair, you're okay with that? Yeah, absolutely, right? You're all pointing at that. It's great. It's fine. Totally fine, younger people. It's great. Go and ask them, hey, has your life been better when you were chasing after false idols, or was your life better when you were being carried by the Lord, when you recognized that his sovereign will was carrying you through life? When was your life better? They will tell you. They will tell you great stories about what Jesus has done for them. This is the first exercise of God's sovereignty. From the moment we're born until the end of our lives, God makes us, he bears us, he carries us, he ultimately saves us. Those of us who trust in Jesus are the burden on the Lord's back. You say, Kyle, I don't want to be a burden to anyone. Don't worry about it. The Lord wants you there. He wants to carry you. He's delighted if you are on his back because he's not some old cow. He's not going to wear out. You won't stoop down if you're on his back. He came to carry you on his back. And if you don't trust Christ, let me tell you that whatever you do and that you do trust in, whatever it is that you're trusting in, 
including yourself, will eventually wear out and will become a burden to you. Make an idol out of your spouse, your marriage is going to suffer. Make an idol out of your kids, it'll push them away. Make an idol out of your money, watch the market drop. Make an idol out of your career, watch COVID hit that like a tsunami. You will at some point be bearing those idols. But trust in the one true God. Trust in the God who created you and made you for his purposes and watch him carry you through every valley, every dark place, every fear, every anxiety. He will not wear out. But maybe, maybe you say, okay, all right, that sounds good. But maybe God carries us through life without knowing what comes next. In verse 8, the Lord tells people who have turned to idols to remember that not only is he a God who carries his people all their lives, he is a God who sets the course for the journey that happens. Before it happens, he's the one that sets the journey. Verse 9, I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times to things not yet done. So the parameters now of God's sovereignty have been expanded in this verse. Before it was birth to old age. Now it's from ancient times to things not yet done. Those are, those are ambiguous phrases to say all the way back to when time began to as far out as you can possibly conceive from the very beginning of everything, God declares the end of everything. That the things that have not yet entered into human history, God is in control of those things. So we haven't got there yet. God's already there. He's already determined it. He doesn't just have an idea about what might come. He's not just putting together some clues, some details, figuring out, like, it looks like we're heading in this particular direction. He's not doing that. He doesn't just know that they will happen. He declares them to happen. See, I might declare something. I might declare to my wife and my kids and my mother and my dog, everybody into the van, we're going to live in Rochester. I could declare that. I did declare that. A declaration is a, pro, is a proclaimed certainty. It's an establishment of a new circumstance that will either take effect now or it will take effect sometime in the future. But here's the thing. My, my declaration of where we're going to live is limited by my power and my knowledge. I can set a course and I can drive. But I don't control everything that happens on the road, do I? I? I can say we are going to Rochester, but I can't know for certain that we are going to live in Rochester until we are living in Rochester. So what happens is my declarations and your declarations are well-reasoned hopes for the future. Well-planned, well-reasoned hopes for the future. But as James tells us, what we really should be doing is saying, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. See, God's declarations aren't contingent on future unforeseen factors. Verse 10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish 
all my purpose. There is nothing within God's entire creation that will operate outside of the, of the way he has declared that thing to operate. It will always serve his purpose for it. Everything that God declares will be done according to his purposes in service to his sovereign plan for all of creation. There are no rogue factors that throw God off. We have rogue factors, seemingly, that throw us off because we didn't see them. God does not have anything that's throwing him off or delaying him or causing him to recalculate his arrival time or his location. And, and this is a big view of God's sovereignty. It's a very big view. And while this big view of the sovereignty of God's purposes and will is it's hard for us to wrap our brains around church, let me tell you, if you will, if you do, you will find incredible comfort in this truth because it means that everything that you've been through is a part of God's work in you. Everything that you've been through is a part of God's work in you. God carrying out his purposes in you, through you, for you. Now, I know precisely where the pain point comes here. Okay? As I say that, I, I, I know the... I know the but, but I know where the but is, and I know where the, the, the tension happens, because I have it too when I think about God's sovereignty. Does this mean that even the pain we've endured and the evil that's been done to us is a part of God's plan? Look carefully with me at verse 11. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. This is the method, okay? So he's declared, my will will be accomplished. Here's how. God is using this. He's declaring that a bird of prey from the east is going to be part of his plan. Now, a bird of prey, to the original readers of this, they would hear that phrase, bird of prey, and they would assume, uh, they would assume an enemy. They would hear an enemy. But note what it says. This bird of prey is also, at the very same time, simultaneously a man of God's counsel. Meaning not only would God's people consider him an enemy, he is also, at the very same time, a tool in God's hand who is following his divine instructions. If you look back to chapter 44, verse 28, you'll see uh, the Persian king Cyrus is actually referred to as God's shepherd who will accomplish God's purposes. In chapter 45, verse 4, God says of Cyrus, he, listen to this, he says, I name you, but you don't know me. You don't have a relationship with me. There is no, there's no us. There is only me and you. I name you, though. I lift you up. You are going to become my servant to do my will. So God uses Cyrus as a pawn to bring about exactly what he wants to do on earth with his people. And Israel had been in captivity under Babylon, uh, under the Babylonian reign for a while. And then the Persian king Cyrus came and he took over around 539 B.C., 
Persian uh, army comes in. Cyrus takes over, kicks out, destroys the Babylonians. He comes in, takes over. 538 B.C., Cyrus changes the political policy. It used to be captivity. Now he says, know what? You can return. You can go back. He allowed Israel to return to Jerusalem to rebuild while remaining under his rule. He wasn't saying you can go back and rule yourself. He's saying, under my rule, you can go back. If you want to read about it, you can go to the book of Ezra and read more about that. That is not an ideal situation for an Israelite. That is not what they wanted. That is not what they were hoping for. They don't want to still be under Cyrus' rule. And so there was this pushback against that idea. There was this stubbornness about this opportunity. They thought just like we think. Why can't God do it another way? Why can't he accomplish the purposes that I need the way I think it ought to happen? Why can't it be blessings all the way? Why does the plan have to be built in pain and humiliation? Why does God use Cyrus like this? Verse, uh, chapter 45, verse 7, is a very important verse. The Lord says, I form light, and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. All these things. God brought Israel into captivity. That was part of his plan. He took them out of their home and took them, and they lived in tents, and they lived by rivers, and they listened to prophets, or at least they heard from prophets. They didn't listen to them. And they suffered. And now they're going back from captivity, but they're going back to Jerusalem under foreign rule. And that was nobody in Israel's plan. Nobody wanted that to happen, but it was all God's plan. God is sovereign over every single experience, every single circumstance, whether it's for our well-being or whether it's for our calamity. God is not the author of sin. He is not evil, but he does allow sin and evil to have its effect in the world because the world has rejected him. And he will direct those who do evil to accomplish his purposes within his plan. They are under his sovereignty even if they don't believe they are under his sovereignty. And the ultimate example of this, of course, which we will return to in just a moment, is Christ himself. But before we go there, we're bumping up against some, what some have called the problem of evil. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. We're near, very near to that right now. And I want to say something very briefly about the problem of evil, because it presents questions. Why does God allow bad things to continue to happen? Why does evil persist and even factor into his plan? If God could stop it, why is he still using it. And on a more personal level, because this is where we usually ask this question, it's usually at the more personal level, we ask, why is this happening to me? Why is God bringing this suffering into my life? I've followed him faithfully. I've done what I can to honor him, to worship him in every circumstance, yet I'm struggling under the weight of the sin and evil. Why doesn't God bring the blessings that scripture seems to promise to those who are obedient and who love him. 
The answers to those questions fill books, lots of books out there, struggling with this issue. Church, I can tell you that I don't believe that there is one definitive answer to that question because Scripture gives us many answers to that question. And part of becoming biblically literate and really applying God's Word in our lives is to know what Scripture says on these things and understand what God may be doing. Here, it's discipline to remind wayward, unrighteous people that the Lord they've forgotten is the only Lord that there is. They've forgotten him. They've gone a different way. And he's using this to open their eyes and open their minds and bring them back into an understanding that they need to worship the Lord, that their ancestors worshiped, that they, they came out of Egypt who were blessed when they were under the covenant and fulfilled the covenant. They need to be reminded of that. James tells us that Trials of all kinds are actually testing that produces steadfastness in our faith so that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That the stuff and the junk that comes in our lives, the things that are brought to us, are God using it as a refiner's fire to strengthen the metal of our faith and build us up because there's a project going on right here in our hearts, and he's making us more like Jesus through these trials. Paul tells us that the things that perplex us and strike us down are light, momentary afflictions preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus tells us that calamity, like a tower that tips over onto seemingly innocent people and kills them, is actually a wake-up call to repent and to get spiritually right with the Lord. Jesus also says he won't return until the gospel has gone to all the nations of the earth and that those who suffer for the sake of the mission are actually experiencing not just some random pain in their lives, but the sufferings of Christ so that they grow to be more like Jesus while on mission for him. I could go on like this. The Bible says so many things about the sufferings that we endure. And the point is, while we don't fully understand the will of God and the purpose that he has for everything that we experience, we can be sure that there is a purpose because God has declared it both good and evil to bring about his sovereign will. The pinnacle of which is the salvation that he's bringing. Let me reread this in full because it's worth reading. This is verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. The ultimate purpose of God's will is to bring his salvation into the world to cure people of unrighteousness with his righteousness and to gather his people from among every nation to glorify him. So God turns to the unrighteous people of that day and by the way, to the unrighteous people of our day and says, listen, you stubborn-hearted people who think you can go your own way, Everything's going my way. Everything is going my way. 
Specifically, this is to the nation of Israel to get them to conform to the God's plan that includes Cyrus, that they need to listen and do what Cyrus tells them. Cyrus, in this passage, is the the unexpected salvation of Israel. But the pattern that Cyrus is part of is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus comes. He is God's righteousness. He is the salvation that comes for the glory of his people. But think about the plan of salvation for just a moment. Think about Jesus and what he did within the plan of salvation. When God's perfect plan of salvation was carried out, was it smooth sailing and blessings all the way? No. No. It was a plan filled with temptations, with rejection, with beatings, and ultimately a cross. The Father's sovereign plan for righteousness and salvation through Jesus required humiliation and submission to a plan that Jesus did not enjoy. Do you remember what he prayed in the garden? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You ever wonder how Jesus felt about the cross? Perfectly willing to go to it. Didn't like it. Didn't care for it. But perfectly willing to do it because it was the Father's will. After the resurrection, Peter preached the gospel this way. Listen, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So are the evil men responsible who killed Jesus? Absolutely, they are responsible. But even their evil was used to bring about the definite plan of God without which we would have no hope at all. And think about what Jesus said to his disciples. He said it to his disciples then. He says it to those of us who follow him now. People who follow him like you and me. This is what he says to us. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Take up his cross is not a call to smooth sailing for your life. Jesus was even more direct when he said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Church, I am firmly convinced that while the sovereignty of God may be one of the more difficult doctrines of God's grace to understand and accept, it is among the most comforting one of the most comforting things that you will ever hear, that you will ever receive. It is inescapably true whether you want to believe it or not. God's sovereignty isn't contingent on whether or not you believe. But when you do embrace it with your mind and you let it settle into your heart, there is surprising relief. Because it means we are free to relax with confidence that God is in control. You can relax with confidence. There's a guy at the steering wheel knows exactly where he's going. He's going to take us exactly there. That whatever is happening around you, 
whatever is happening in you, whatever's going on in your family right now, whatever you're struggling with, is all part of his plan. He is not surprised. He is not thrown off by it. Even if we might be thrown off by it, he is not thrown off by it. We are free to pray for our friends and loved ones who don't know Jesus. And we can share the gospel with them as much as we want. And every time the Lord gives us opportunity, we can invest the gospel into the people that we love while at the same time relaxing into the truth that God is going to do with that gospel whatever he intends. Only he can change a heart. And he's going to do the work. And whatever he intends for that gospel to do in that person's heart, that is what is going to happen. And we can live without fear. This might be the most comforting truth of all when it comes to God's sovereignty. We can live without fear. We can obey and worship the Lord with confidence. We can go into dangerous missions field. We can go to the place where it is most dangerous to share Jesus and plan and plot and work hard to reach people with the gospel and translate scriptures and go where you might not come out and we can go there with the confidence knowing that God is in control even of that dangerous place no matter what happens to us. We can endure anything. We can endure sickness and suffering all with the full confidence that the Lord is guiding every step and nothing we encounter is outside of his plans for us and his plans for all of creation. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful that you are sovereign. And while we may not understand, Lord, everything that you're doing, all that you're accomplishing, every, every turn in the road, every, every time something gets us down, every time we hit an obstacle, every time we have a joy we can't explain, every, every, every step we take, we don't know where it's going, but Lord, we are confident that you do. And Lord, it gives us great joy to know that you are in control. And I thank you, Lord, for a Christ who came and was willing to live a life of perfect submission to you, even though it cost him his life, even when he went to the cross for us, knowing that it was better for your will, not his will. Thank you, Father, for this sovereignty. And give us, Lord, eyes and hearts to embrace it. As we live for you, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I go out, church, with the confidence that no matter what God brings to you, God's in control of it. Have a wonderful week.